0: Welcome to Bowel Sounds, NASPGEN's pediatric GI podcast. I'm Jen Lee.
1: And I'm Peter Liu.
0: We're pediatric gastroenterologists at Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio. This is episode four, Peter. Wow,
1: that's crazy. Um, We have our fourth straight former or current NASPGEN president. True. The one and only Dr. B. Lee.
0: He came out of retirement for this.
1: He did. I think there are a few people where a disorder is synonymous with one person. So, it's really quite the privilege to sit down with him and talk about um, his life's work.
0: Yeah, let's go check it out. Let's do that. Dr. Lee, thank you so much for taking the time to come and talk to us today, uh, specifically about cyclic vomiting syndrome. Um, Delighted
2: to be here. But you can call me the Emperor of Emesis. Yes. Ah, Yes. Mr.
0: Emperor of Emesis. Yes. Ah, Thank you for being here. But you have
2: to bow also. (laughs) I'm bowing. Thank you for bowing. For the listeners, she is bowing.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So you built a career in an arcane niche. That nobody really cared about.
1: These are quotes. These are from the Emperor of Emerson.
0: (laughs) Despite discouragement and doubt that cyclic vomiting was a real thing, why did you choose to make your career in that area?
2: I think what got me intrigued was this mystery of these patients who were so well and so sick and then the serendipity of developing synergy with a parent. It started with, during my fellowship, when I saw a few of these kids, and they're clearly some of the most miserable kids that you can see on the planet. They're just curled up into a ball, vomiting every five to 10 minutes, and uh, completely out of control. And even when the stomach is empty, it just persists. So something is driving this. And then you see them in clinic, and they're a happy, well-child, and you're saying, what is this disorder? And I had some success as a fellow with propranolol, which is what we used, and, and uh, that we could help them. And so the serendipity part is that a woman with a daughter in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, wanted to form a support group, and uh, she hosted a, quote, national meeting and tried to get anybody that had written anything, including the abstract, which is all I had written at that point. I listened for the first time to adolescents and young adults tell their story because most of my patients had been quite young and what they were experiencing on the inside. And I began to realize, one, the vomiting for many of them was not the worst part. They, one described it so vividly as being in a rocking boat in the middle of the ocean. And she described it more as a bowl. And so there's no orientation, you're just rocking. Anything can make it rock. And that can be somebody speaking to you, they're hyperesthetic, turning on the light, turning on the music, turning on the TV, even touching their own child, and that would send them off into waves of nausea, and then they would start vomiting again. Some of them said, the worst part is the nausea because it's unrelenting, and even after they vomit, they don't feel any better. And I began to realize I didn't know (laughs) enough about this disorder, and, and I was quite humbled. I agreed to be part of the organization uh, and, uh, and I realized in order to get out of these kind of dark ages where nobody has any idea what this is, a few articles starting back to 1882 but no real concerted understanding of this, I felt that we should have a scientific meeting. And so the partnership came. Kathleen Adams, uh, the past president of CBSA, she and her colleagues um, went out and raised money, and I was able to organize a program which was held at the hospital that Samuel G. actually described this disorder in 1882 in written form. And the description is perfect in 2019 as it was in 1882, indicating that a good clinician-observer can make an impact. I mean, we could write the criteria from what he described. We focused our meeting on getting everybody who had written anything about CVS. So we got most of the people there, including psychologists, GI people, uh, and pediatricians who had written on the disorder. And we were at the St. Bartholomew's Hospital in London, and... um, Everybody presented a paper, and then I edited them, and we raised money to publish a supplement in JPGN. Within a year or two, CVS began being used as a term, both in NAS at our annual meeting, where it never had been before, and also uh, within another year at the AGA. I'm not sure I really knew what was going to happen, but I, uh, my goal was to move things forward. Because it was published in a reputable journal, and we put diagnostic criteria in there, people started to recognize it as maybe semi-legitimate. And so that actually had an effect. The second symposium, just a follow up four years later in uh, 1998, was my attempt to get all the basic scientists who would not only talk about their area, but learn something about CVS and then feedback something about whether their particular expertise was a direction to go in. So at that meeting, we, of course, had motility people We had central vomiting people who worked on the brainstem. We had a ADH because antidiuretic hormone can cause nausea. We had EGG people. We also had migraine NMR people and a CRF person, corticotropin-releasing factor that we think could be involved. And finally, an ion-channel apathy person. And several people told me they thought it was one of the most interesting scientific meetings because we had all of these different perspectives cross-talking. But in my screening of each of the speakers, one of my criteria was, are you also willing to learn something about CVS? Because many are willing to, oh, of course, I'm willing to talk about mine, but open-minded to talk. So it was a a wonderful meeting, but gave us some ideas. And out of that, a couple NIH starter grants came out, and that was also an important, so a completely different focus. One was collecting information to put a place, a mark in the literature. And then the second was to kind of create thinking about what could be causing it, better treatments, where we should be thinking about um, new avenues of research, etc.
1: When you just started out and you became interested in this disorder based on the patients you were seeing, I mean, was it then that you were like, this is what I'm going to focus on for the rest of my career, or was it kind of just, or did it kind of grow over time
2: as you came across these opportunities and met different people? Excellent question, because with early career faculty or a fellow, which is, you know, how do I find my passion? I think uh, if there had not been this synergy with the support group, I may have gone on to another topic, because I was already starting to think about H. pylori, and I wrote a, a, a couple small grants on H. pylori, and uh, obviously, I was thinking of the next thing after CBS. But once this synergy developed, and the, clearly the need was there, I was fascinated by it, I started seeing more patients. The internet was just starting, and some of them came through that because they could now search who published, and then the support group would say, okay, well, Dr. Lee knows something about this, and so some patients would start to come that way. And I will tell you, also, my colleague said, I would like you to have this patient. I, and and they, the implicit was, I, I'm, I'm not really sure what to do with yeah. them, and I'm happy to give you these patients. So they started coming <laughs> maybe more than they should have been. And so with all that practice and more patients coming in from colleagues and so forth, you obviously get better, you know, right. like uh, the tipping point, uh, you know, the practice of what uh, 10,000 times you know and uh, to, to become an expert so you get better you see more varieties it makes you think and uh, and uh, and it's kind of fun to to have uh, this kind of mini expert, e- expertise that nobody else has and a lot of it is just Clinical experience, but it intrigued me. I did become passionate about it, but it was reinforced by other factors, and some of which, you know, was like meeting this uh, parent yeah. who uh, became the president of the support organization CBSA, and uh, and that really helped reinforce it. So you have a passion, but sometimes if there's not enough need or reinforcement, or you can't get enough patients, obviously, it, it won't flourish. But it it, uh, it did.
0: So for our listeners who may not be as familiar, can you define or describe cyclic vomiting syndrome?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Ah, this is an interesting one, because uh, I think at times uh, our uh, group has disagreed with the Rome uh, Committee. Um, So uh, for example, how many episodes, so these are recurrent episodes of vomiting, and we defined it. In our NASP again, uh consensus criteria is uh, five or more total or three or more over a six month period, and I think we put a higher bar there than the Rome because we felt you have to really see a pattern If you' have seen many of these like I have i I can recognize it in the second episode uh, based on qualitative criteria. And I think those are very important with this. So one is recurrent episodes of vomiting, and then, and then the child turns back to well. So that could obviously be confused with gastroenteritis, mm-hmm. but the appearance of the patient is very important they are stereotypic so when you ask the parents are these episodes at all similar and they say oh absolutely they start at the same time of day they go about the same number and he is pale and he's washed out and he doesn't talk this is cyclic vomiting Mm -hmm. because Usually, you don't get all those appearances until somebody's really dehydrated. Right. Whereas these will be be like this from the first hour, and so much so that uh, I mean, one of the classic appearance I have is the the parent carrying them into the ER like a wet rag. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a walking, talking seven-year-old, and he's carried in like this limp rag and uh, and so forth. Um, so one is, I would say, the stereotypical pattern. Many of them have very high intensity vomiting, and I define that as more than four times an hour at the peak. And actually, the mean and median is about six times an hour, so that's about every 10 minutes. That's a peak of the worst episode. So it's very intense and stereotypical, and then they have these other symptoms where they're Completely pale, so much they can look like they're in shock, extremely listless, so some of them will not walk or talk at all. And that's atypical for most other things unless they get really dehydrated, but that's usually after 24, 36 hours. And these kids will be like this from the beginning. So I
1: think one thing that is so distinct about cyclic vomiting syndrome is that the clinical presentation is so, I guess, distinct from other functional GI disorders and other GI disorders in general. And so clearly the diagnosis is based on their clinical presentation. But, you know, there are recommended tests that, you know, are proposed. What are the tests that we get, that you would get on potentially every patient that you suspect is a syndrome? And then what would maybe clue you into getting some extra testing?
2: I think that this is a a huge challenge because when I was here in the old days at Columbus Children's, we actually did a semi-quantitative Assessment. we tried to add up uh, what the cost of our cohort, and it was about $17,000 in 1999 dollars. So it was very expensive. And a lot of that is testing and uh, also hospitalization. So testing is a big part. We know statistically that you don't find much, and a recent paper also demonstrates that uh, from uh, Lurie Children's. So the question is how much, because you, you don't want to miss things, and the most important things... That have been catastrophic has been mid gut volvulus from malrotation, which can lead to short gut, and there have been several national cases of short gut syndrome, permanent liver disease, blah blah blah, blah. and you you know what the end of that story is like, so how much to do is is uh is a question because in truth when we looked at the cohort almost everybody has had everything done and everything twice and including procedures uh very often and in the literature there's also about 20% of kids that have had laparotomy or laparoscopy wow. and usually normal appendix yeah. normal gallbladder removed and or or nothing found and uh, and so most of those are unnecessary so, in our guidelines, we we just argued for just a CBC, uh, electrolytes, BUN, and uh, glucose, uh, and creatinine—a very short list—and an upper GI. We actually did a cost-benefit analysis, and of course, we we know the the result of liver transplantation from short gut. And TPN, and um, so we we looked at that as a worst case scenario. And the only test that was of benefit versus cost was doing an upper GI in every single patient. Yeah. That is the most catastrophic. The second one, about one in a hundred in our large cohort, was um, hydronephrosis, mm-hmm. So acute hydronephrosis, so called details crisis, and uh, and that can that. Probably is the closest mimic of CVS. And I have been in a situation where I was actually had this uh, uh, teenage girl enrolled in uh, protocol using Ondansetron, and she wasn't responding. (laughs) And I did an ultrasound, and lo and behold, (laughs) she had. So I personally have been fueled. So you know that there are some uh, tough cases out there. But I think what we're trying to argue for is if it's a very classic story, they don't have seven-day hospitalizations, that there may be one or two days of vomiting and they recover fully, a typical story, and their screening laboratories that I just described were normal, that you could really just start prophylactically to treat them. Or you could try a border therapy, something like sumatriptan. But if they are Different, they don't respond. Then they they warrant further evaluation. So we're we're trying to do it in two stage. Less at the beginning if it's a typical story. So what are the exceptions? Obviously, very severe abdominal pain. Then you begin to worry about pancreatitis, uh, maybe uh, cholelithiasis or cholecystitis. So you would then expand the the labs, uh, particularly if it's localized in the in the right upper quadrant. So uh, always being aware of our usual GI things, but. Obviously, if it's the sixth one, they've been identical. You don't have to do liver enzymes every time. For the younger child, Uh, highest risk ones, I think, are the toddlers under two, where we want to be more concerned about metabolic disease. So the the specific ones of disorders of fatty acid oxidation, you know, uh, organic acidemias, uh, they usually should be picked up before, but we know there are exceptions. And then something like partial ornithine transcarbamylase, where a high protein meal then triggers uh, obtundation and vomiting. In the older kid, I think there was one in our series uh, can be possible. So looking for clues, there's uh, mental or neurological changes, and MRI is is really key. What we're trying to do is say these are kind of red flags. Uh, They can be abdominal, including hematemesis. They can be kind of metabolic, like fasting or a high-protein meal, or they can be neurological change in cognition, loss of milestones, then obviously very specific testing should be done.
0: Can you explain your approach to the treatment of a child who presents to the emergency department with recurrent vomiting related to cyclic vomiting? How can we stop the episode, prevent hospitalization?
2: That's a tough question because I I think from my long perspective, you generally cannot stop a well-established episode. So if they were three, four hours in, the ability to terminate it is really low. From the patient's standpoint, I would say the best thing for them is to have a protocol and then to continue to modify the protocol. So the idea is to actually give the, the patients a recipe that they can bring into the uh, emergency room. And the components would be IV fluids. And in our guidelines, we recommend a D10, almost treating them like a metabolic patient. Uh, secondly, would be an anti so ondansetron is standard. But uh, a preptin can also be given, but it's mostly in PO form. So that often doesn't work. There is phospreptin, sometimes hard to get a hold of. It's a phosphorylated prodrug. Then uh, pain management, and usually we're recommending ketorolac. And then lastly, sedation. And why sedation? Sedation is very interesting. Uh, Atavan or lorazepam has been used for, uh, for probably since the mid-90s. And uh, not only is it a relaxant, but I think more as a sedative, if they can get sedated. Again, this is what I learned from uh, some of the teens and young adults who could really articulate it. If they can sleep, they don't have nausea and they don't vomit. And oftentimes, sleep at the end of an episode is a harbinger of improvement. They'll have this deep sleep, and then they'll wake, and it's over. And also, during the summertime, many of the kids will say, if I can sleep past 9 o'clock, I never get sick. But when I have to get up at 6.30 or uh, 7, I just don't, I feel nauseated. Mm -hmm. And there's some sort of circadian uh, uh, pattern in there. And so... The sleep, if we can get them to sleep, they can feel more comfortable. And I think, moreover, if they get into deep sleep, sometimes you will terminate it. The proof of that concept is a study where they use general anesthesia, dexmatomidine, which is an alpha-2 agonist uh, general anesthetic, but generally does not require intubation. PICU people are very, very comfortable using it. And uh, this protocol I've used uh, more than 10 times, and it is effective. Uh, and, and so once you put them to sleep, everything stops. They just sleep. And then the, the challenge is how quickly do you come off because some of them rebound uh, and then start vomiting again. But I think deep sleep can do it. But obviously, we're very limited on the ward. Uh, on a regular ward so most of them are comfortable with uh, lorazepam but it probably takes really pushing the lorazepam to do it and you know that's not something any ward wants you to do so if you could really get them into a sound sleep other than just kind of light sedation we might be able to stop more of them but uh, it's just not something feasible to do in a regular ward so it sounds like really what matters is early intervention. Obviously, it's hard to get
1: to the ED in three or four hours. So it's talking to the family, education, yes. having a plan. Um, so just really quick, you mentioned a prepotent. You mentioned it as an abortive. And then I, uh, you know, my understanding is there's like a study also, people have been using it for uh, prophylactic uh, use as well. What are your thoughts about a prepotent? Do you feel like it's better than some of the more traditional things that, we, that we've used? Or do you feel like it's just another tool in a toolbox?
2: What do you think? I think we're still learning. Um, From uh, my experience, uh, amitripline was probably the best uh, preventative agent uh, when I stack it up with all the kids and cyproheptadine and Mm -hmm. propranolol and anticonvulsants. Um, uh, The challenge is there's some new concern about apreptin, as you're aware, and maybe dementia. This was, of course, a study in adults, but what... what, uh, the uh, outcome will be for kids. We we really don't know. Mm-hmm. The aprepitant was based on a nice study, but still rather small, from the Great Ormond Street, and they used it both abortively if they could get it in a uh, half an hour before the vomiting started, uh, early. Uh, so that means in the prodrome. So they have to have a prodrome. Once they vomit, then it's very difficult. But they also had a protocol using it prophylactically, which was, in my mind, quite interesting. And this was given uh, twice a week, uh, Monday, Thursday, uh, Sunday, Wednesday, and uh, over a year. And they were able to show definitely decreased, fewer episodes, fewer hospitalizations, more school attendance, all all, all of the above. And um, the main challenge, as you are aware, has been the expense. So. When I was using it, most of the time it was turned down, mm-hmm. and now it's gone generic and it is still expensive, but more affordable and we're getting more approval. So we're getting much more experience now, and it looks to be uh, quite good and the question is, is it better or worse, we don't know, but it's, right. it looks to be quite good in a prophylactic role.
0: Can you tell us more about the relationship of cyclic vomiting syndrome and migraines? They both have prodromes; they have these episodes. Um, Does this come into play when you discuss prognosis and outcome?
2: As many things... The origin that goes way, way before our time. And the earliest reference and connection between CVS and migraine is 1898. So it was only 100 years later. <laughs> so it's been known, I think, that many of the patients will develop migraines later, uh, that you can use anti-migraines for it. There's migraines in the family history. And so the neurologists actually have a term for this. They call it periodic syndrome. So that includes episodic events under the migraine umbrella that include migraine headache, which tend to be older, a nice study showing that's about 11 years old, as the median age, and then abdominal migraine median age nine, and then cyclic vomiting median age five, mm-hmm. and uh, and indeed, if you follow kids with CVS, you some will go through an abdominal migraine phase, some will then develop migraine headaches. We uh, projected actually seventy five percent will develop migraine headaches by age. 18 by college age but some start with migraine headaches and go to CVS so it can go all ways but the predominant one was CVS to migraine headaches. So, yes, uh, we think they are related, but in fact, nobody knows what a migraine headache is, but I- indeed they're they're very similar. They occur in same patients, and oftentimes the families of a child with CVS is rife with migraine headaches, right. and usually on the maternal side only, interestingly, mm-hmm. and so that led us to to look at mitochondrial DNA. If you try to differentiate something like abdominal migraine from CVS, it is difficult in the sense that if you look at a Venn diagram, 50% of patients in series with abdominal migraine also vomited. So essentially, they were including CVS. If you look at our cohort of CVS patients, 80% have abdominal pain. Mm -hmm. So you could see tremendous overlap. So how do we functionally decide it? Because oftentimes, if you go to see a pediatric neurologist, they'll call it either periodic syndrome or abdominal migraine. But if they came to us looking at the same patient, we would call it CVS. So you can see it can go either way. Functionally, we try to say, what is the predominant symptom? What is the most troublesome, consistent symptom? Is it vomiting or abdominal pain? And then and then you'll see some morph over time. But uh, that's kind of how we functionally decided. But you can see there's tremendous overlap. Mm-hmm. But we do think that uh, because many of the families have migraine, they, they do understand that this is episodic. And, for example, stress can trigger it off. Menstrual periods for an adolescent girl... Weather changes, sometimes foods, uh, MSG, aged cheese, and so forth, that they will begin to understand that maybe some of the same thing will trigger off attacks of CVS as they have seen in their family with migraine headaches. I think it was at the single
1: topic symposium last year. I remember you're describing the different variants that are present within that diagnosis. (laughs) And there's that debate whether cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome is related to or falls under this umbrella of cyclic vomiting syndrome. What are your thoughts about that? I hate to blow
2: smoke on this. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't resist a, a bad time. <laughs> um, uh, just in terms of uh, CVS subtypes, in my mind, if I step back and look, I think there are probably different pots of CVS That is, it's heterogeneous mm-hmm. and because I ended up with such a large cohort, and over 1,200 patients, I began to see different types. So the easiest one was migraine-associated CVS and non-migraine. And what I found is different response rates to anti-migraine therapy. But then others ones seem to show up. So one is what I call catamenial CVS. So it's with the onset of periods. And barring from the menstrual migraine literature, it seems to be related to the rapid in estrogen. And in my experience, unfortunately not much published, low estrogen birth control pills or Depo-Provera will by and large take care of it Mm -hmm. without any of the usual anti-migraine drugs that we use. Another group would be the Sato variant, Mm -hmm. and that is characterized by hypertension, very prolonged and severe episodes and a neuroendocrine profile uh, with an activated HPA access. We think those hormones contribute to the hypertension that that develops and they're, they're very severe. One group that I have found very difficult to manage is what I've termed, for want of a better word, is long cycle calendar timed. This is a group generally that has very precisely timed episodes more than 60 days apart. And I ask them to mark off the intervals from first day to first day to first day to first day, and they'll bring in a year's calendar. It'll be 61, Hmm. 63, 62, 64, 62, 61. And I've asked chronobiologists, what kind of rhythm? And I can't get a clue from any expert. With next-gen sequencing, we're finding some nuclear mutations that affect mitochondrial function and a stress response. The one we published on is RYR2, a ryanidine receptor. Maybe there's a perfect storm. Mm -hmm. that involves some nuclear and uh, mitochondrial DNA that gives you a specific sub-phenotype. Because if it were simply as mitochondrial, all the sibs would have the exact same thing because they have all mother's mitochondrial DNA. So there have to be modifiers. (laughs) cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome, described in 2004, is a term used in the New Rome criteria of 2016. This subgroup turns out to be uh, usually young males, some adolescents, but mostly young adult males who have used cannabis for two to 10 years continuously, almost four, five, six, seven times a week. Mm -hmm. So clearly recreationally. And what has been confusing is people use cannabis to control nausea and increase appetite, especially in uh, chemotherapy patients, and it is effective. Mm -hmm. And so what is this? And uh, recently, we completed uh, adult CVS treatment guidelines, and as part of one of the four papers, reviewed 376 case report and case series of so-called CHS, and if we apply the Rome criteria. And we use a criteria that they have to be episode free for at least a month after stopping it. So Mm -hmm. that's a proof of putting that there's cause and effect. Only 16% meet the Rome 4 criteria. Mm -hmm. And we think the cessation response probably should be like four to six months. It should be several cycles. And so we didn't even set that high a bar. Our view is that it is a subtype of CVS with a cannabis trigger. Uh, so that's actually the position we've taken in the review, that it is not a separate disorder. For example, the pathognomonic feature that they describe is hot water bathing, mm-hmm. that they stand under hot water showers or get into a scalding bath and right. they're beet red and they feel better, they get right. out, they start vomiting. This is found in children with CVS and about 4 to 8% of adult CVS who have not been exposed or mm-hmm. do not admit exposure to cannabis. Yeah. So what could cannabis be doing that's so bad? In our minds, I think the one tenable theory is that it's a biphasic effect. So a low dose Occasional therapeutic dose, it does have a, a an attenuation effect. It attenuates stress, but also nausea, increase the appetite. But long term use slash abuse maybe alters a receptor. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe there's a polymorphism in that individual, but in that uh, uh, potential individual, it alters a receptor affinity and then kind of flips the effect. And so that's our view at this point. But I, I think we have a long way to go to understand. But uh, I think we put out the gauntlet there to say it it's too facile because what happens now to the detriment of the ER patient is they come in vomiting right. like CVS, and they right. say, have you ever smoked yep. marijuana? And they go, of course. You know, right. I've tried to get rid of my nausea. And they, ah, that's another yeah. CHS patient. Right. And they really have just made a guilt by association. But that is not really true. They haven't right. done it for five years continuously. That, that's, uh, and, and so actually what I'm hearing from adult patients is that they're often accused of mm-hmm. this when they walk in. Right. And they they actually have CVS, and so they should be treated like CVS. But instead, they're classified as cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome and a cannabis abuser, mm-hmm. and and that, that is un, very unfortunate for them. Yeah, I mean, because honestly, even nausea and vomiting disorders alone. I mean, not
1: apart from CVS. I feel a lot of times, if they present like that, they have a positive THC, then the evaluation stops, and that's is blamed on CHS, and and then the treatment is just. And stopping it and waiting and, you know. And I
2: Continue to vomit. Right. So I think <laughs> yeah. that's
1: something, anyways, another, a different topic, but yeah. something
2: that's uh So it's, it's definitely a hot topic.
0: Well, and yeah. I wonder if, you know, over time, as more and more states legalize right. recreational use of marijuana, we may be seeing more of this in the future. And so I think that it's important for us to continue to study so we can best help the patients.
2: In fact, in Colorado, uh, the ER has looked at admissions for emesis before and after, mm-hmm. and they have gone up. So your point is extremely well taken.
0: You know, Dr. Lee, this has just been an amazing time with you, learning all about cyclic vomiting
2: syndrome. Um, Does it make you want to puke? <laughs> no. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what advice do you have for fellows that are starting their career, um, they haven't really found their niche they don't have a name like the emperor of emesis yet.
2: <laughs> Boy, that's a tough one because th- I didn't start with a passion, but as I became intrigued with the disorder, I got some positive feedback and then it made me want to dig deeper, think broadly to say what could be causing this darned illness and then when I was working on the symposia and so forth it became really interesting. And then uh, it just built on theirs. So you, you have to be willing to try it and be persistent and then see if you can build on it. And then oftentimes it builds on itself as you become more engaged. So I've been fortunate.
1: All right, thank you so much again. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Time to go, okay.
0: I feel so much smarter just in the last 30 minutes.
1: I too feel smarter. <laughs> Uh, anyways, thanks for everyone for listening to another episode of the Bow Sounds podcast.
0: And if you like what you hear, you can follow us at @bowsounds on Instagram, @bowsounds on Twitter, and the Pediatric GI Podcast on Facebook.
1: That is correct. Bow Sounds was marked as an inappropriate username. Did you know that?
0: No, I don't think <laughs> yeah, I realized it's that.
1: Pretty insane, but whatever. So, and then if you liked what you heard and you want to support the show support NASP again by clicking on the link on our website page and make a donation to the NASP foundation.
0: Yep. Until next time. See you later. Bye. Bye. And as always, the discussion views and recommendations in this podcast are the sole responsibility of the host and guest and are subject to change over time with advances in the field.